Hey, Grass of Life. Uh, Pastor Caleb here. And since I was sick two weeks ago, we studied Daniel 6, um, and graciously, Will Lomker read my sermon for me on Sunday. Um, the recording of the sermon was, uh, well, it frankly just wasn't what I wanted it to be. And that's no shade on Will, just simply that it's hard to read a sermon that you didn't write. <laughs> um, so my goal today is just to re-record my sermon as if I would have preached it so that uh, this resource can exist in the internet for somebody who might want to find it. You also who might want to remember some of the things that I said, or maybe if um, you weren't able to be there that Sunday, or uh, if you don't remember some of the things from that Sunday, uh, I want you to have this resource. So we're going to study Daniel 6. We're continuing a series uh, that's called A Christian in Babylon about the book of Daniel. So let me read the text for us, which is the famous story of Daniel in the lion's den, and then we'll, uh, we'll talk about it. It pleased Darius to appoint 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom with three administrators over them, one of whom was Daniel. The satraps were made accountable to them so that the king might not suffer loss. Now Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. At this, the administrators and satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. They could not find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Finally, these men said, we will never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it has something to do with the law of his God. So these administrators and satraps went as a group to the king and said, may King Darius live forever. The royal administrators, prefects, satraps, advisors, and governors have all agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who praised any god or human being during the next 30 days, except to you, your majesty, shall be thrown into the lion's den. Now, your majesty, issue the decree and put it in writing so that it cannot be altered in accordance with the laws of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be repealed. So King Darius put the decree in writing. Now, when Daniel learned the, that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened toward Jerusalem. Three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God, just as he had done before. Then these men went as a group and found Daniel praying and asking God for help. So they went to the king and spoke to him about his royal decree. Did you not publish a decree that during the next 30 days, anyone who praised any God or human being except to you, your majesty, would be thrown into the lion's den? The king answered, The decree stands in accordance with the laws of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be repealed. And they said to the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, your majesty, or to the decree you put in writing. He still prays three times a day. When the king heard this, he was greatly distressed. He was determined to rescue Daniel and made every effort until sundown to save him. Then the men went as a group to King Darius and said to him, Remember, your majesty, that according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, no decree or edict that the king issues can be changed. So the king gave the order. They brought Daniel and threw him into the lion's den. The king said to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, rescue you. A stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the rings of his nobles, so that Daniel's situation might not be changed. Then the king returned to his palace and spent the night without eating and without any entertainment being brought to him, and he could not sleep. At the last first light of dawn, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den. When he came near the den, he called to Daniel in an anguished voice, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to rescue you from the lions? Daniel answered, May the king live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the mouths of the lions. 
They have not hurt me, because I was found innocent in his sight. Nor have I done anything wrong before you, your majesty. The king was overjoyed and gave orders to lift Daniel out of the den. And when Daniel was lifted from the den, no wound was found on him, because he had trusted in his God. At the king's command, the men who had falsely accused Daniel were brought in and thrown into the lion's den along with their wives and children. Before they reached the floor of the den, the lions overpowered them and crushed all their bones. Then King Darius wrote to all the nations and peoples of every language in all the earth, May you prosper greatly. I issue a decree that in every part of my kingdom people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel, for he is the living God and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed, his dominion will never end. He rescues and he saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. So Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. So this is God's word, and today we're working through probably the most famous text of the book of Daniel, commonly called Daniel and the Lion's Den. Unfortunately, as is often the case with the most famous stories of scripture, uh, we have not graduated past the Sunday school level of understanding with these stories. So I hope that we can grow together in understanding this amazingly practical text and its implications for our lives. Because of that, I want to focus less on what happened in this story, because I'm assuming you've heard the story before. I want to spend time on how it instructs as we live in Babylon. Uh, If you haven't been tracking with us for the last little over a month, we've called this series on Daniel a Christian in Babylon because there are a notable amount of parallels between what Daniel and his friends go through in this book and what we experience in our modern world today. But before we get into the points for today, we need to spend a little time on on a significant criticism that non-Christian scholars have of this text. Uh, Daniel is a highly criticized book in biblical scholarship because many scholars will say that the event uh, events recorded in Daniel do not line up with the historical record that we have from outside the Bible. I, of course, want you to see that actually the book of Daniel is accurate history. So I want to take a few minutes to answer one question about the text. At the beginning of the text, we are introduced to a man named Darius the Mede. We found out at the end of chapter 5 that he was the ruler who came in and took over the Babylonian Empire when Belshazzar was deposed by God. However, there's a bit of an issue here. The name Darius doesn't show up in any literature outside the Bible by this name. And in fact, uh, the historical record shows that the man who was actually in command of the Medo-Persian Empire that overtook Babylon was a man named Cyrus the Great. So there you go, Christian. (laughs) Don't you feel foolish that your Bible is full of errors? Well, remember last time how we said that the exact same thing happened with Belshazzar. His name was nowhere in any writings until we uncovered some inscriptions that proved the Bible correct. So let's first just cut the Bible some slack. But then let's also see that it's actually very likely that Darius and Cyrus are the same person. Now, this is a sermon, not a historical literary expedition, so I'm not going to go through all of the argumentation, but I'll just say that Darius was likely this man's given name, and Cyrus was his royal name. Much of what Darius does in the text lines up with what we know that Cyrus did, and it was not uncommon for rulers to change their names in this time. You might even think of popes today. They take a new name when they are put into the office of the papacy. The same is most likely true of Darius. So with that being said, Today, I want to focus on three things in the text and try to keep the, trying to keep them in an alliteration. We're going to look at the lifestyle, the law, and the lion. So uh, let's focus on the lifestyle first, specifically with the lifestyle of Daniel. 
Now, I think the first thing we are to notice about Daniel is his occupation. And we haven't really talked about that specifically so far in this series. So I think it's important for us. Daniel is very interesting among the, among the biblical authors because he is not a full-time prophet. Uh, you know, as you look at the most famous authors of the Bible, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Elijah, Moses, they are all full-time prophets. Their job is to speak for God. But Daniel was different. He was a prophet, no doubt, but his full-time job was government official. And there are a couple really important things to notice about that. In Babylon, who are the Christians who make the difference? Well, to prove this point, who is the only other biblical character we get a story about from this time? Esther. Who are Daniel and Esther? Not church workers. Daniel is a 75-year-old government official. Esther is just your average teenage Jewish girl. And that teaches us something very important. In Babylon, the non-clergy are the ones who mostly get the work done. See, in a world where Christianity dominates the culture, the opinions and work of the clergy are supreme because the majority of people see the clergy as the best of society. But not so in Babylon. In fact, in Babylon, the opposite is true. In Babylon, the clergy get ignored, or if we're being honest, they usually get killed. So let's make a couple specific applications to our context. First, our church is not going to grow because of me. Uh, The people out there trust me less than they trust you because in their mind, at best, I'm a relic of a bygone era. At worst, I'm the embodiment of the enemy. So don't expect me to be able to make much of a dent in our culture and bringing people to know Jesus. I certainly will try because I'm not just a pastor, I'm also a Christian. But in general, our church will grow as much as you, the non-clergy, are willing to do the work of showing Jesus to the people out there. Second, sort of as an implication of that truth, we cannot be a pastor-centric church. We cannot be a church where either our experience of God or our functional reality as a congregation depends mostly on me. In Babylon, pastor-centric ministry just doesn't work. What does work is Christians living their lives in a distinctly Christian way as they go about their everyday business. We call this the doctrine of vocation, that every person has a specific assignment from God to love and care for and be the hands and feet and mouth of Jesus too. And your assignment is different than mine. You can reach people I will never reach, either because I'm not going to meet them in any meaningful way or because they will simply be skeptical of me because I'm a pastor. Third, another implication of that truth, you as those who call Cross of Life your church home cannot be consumers only. Of course, you come here to be fed God's word, to drink deeply from the water of life and the scriptures as I preach them, and the Lord's Supper as you eat and drink. But we must see our survival and growth as a church as dependent on the ex- uh, to the extent to which you see this as the organization that you own, not that I own. The pastor is not the CEO of the church. The people are with the pastor as a servant, to hold them accountable to God's word. And maybe as a final application to this point, it's great that we encourage young men towards ministry, towards being pastors. But here's the thought, what if we just encouraged them toward being spiritual leaders without being pastors? I'm thinking of our young men who are in their 20s and 30s, as well as our young men who are still children. We are going to be far more alive as a congregation if we are dependent on many more people than just the pastor to do ministry. Okay, so specifically, what am I asking you to do? To live a distinctly Christian life in your vocations. 
And the text gives us insight into what that looks like. Notice that in this narrative, there are two completely opposite opinions of Daniel in the text, but they are operating with the same evidence. On the one hand, you have Darius, who loves Daniel, sees Daniel as really good, a person who he wants in charge because of his faithfulness and diligence. This is so true that when Daniel gets thrown into the lion's den, Darius can't sleep or eat. He loves Daniel. On the other hand, you have the other satraps who absolutely hate Daniel so much that they want him dead. And why? For the exact same reasons. Notice the first way they try to catch Daniel is by trying to dig up some dirt on him, but when they can't, they get really irritated because he's not like them. For Darius, the fact that Daniel lived as a Christian made him immensely attractive. Where on the other hand, the fact that Daniel lived as a Christian made him a stench to the other satraps. And there's something super practical for us to learn in that. A distinctly Christian life will be both immensely attractive to some and disgusting to others. Look, what Jesus said was that we are an embodiment of him in the world. And think about Jesus. On the one hand, more people in world history have followed Jesus than anyone else. And on the other hand, not only was Jesus killed for saying what he said, but more Christians have been killed for their faith than the practitioners of any other faith. Paul said the same thing in 2 Corinthians. We are the smell of life to some and the stench of death to others. Let's examine each of those. First, why is someone who's living a Christian life immensely attractive? The basic reason is that a person who is living the Christian life is living on a completely different trajectory than every other person on earth. Most people are trying to make a name for themselves in the things that they do, whether those things are professional or personal. They're trying to make sure that someone notices them. That can be at work, in relationships, online, it doesn't matter. But a Christian has a different perspective. To illustrate, this idea is common in many movies, TV shows, and books. Uh, Usually it's some person from a small town who goes on a big adventure, either to the big city or a faraway land. But then after the adventure, they come back to the small town and their experience of the small town is different. Why? Because they've experienced something that no one in their town has seen. Everyone else only has the small town life in front of them. But the main character has seen the world. And so they don't fit in. And yet, they're often very helpful to the town because they know things that the people of the town could not have possibly known otherwise. This is the Christian life. You, Christian, have seen something that the rest of the people living in darkness have not seen. You've seen that this life is not all that there is, that you don't have to make a name for yourself because God has already given you a name. You don't have to store up treasures for yourself because your inheritance is in heaven. You don't have to run around doing everything in this life because you have an eternity to look forward to. You don't have to fix everything yourself because you have a God who is watching over all things. And and once that seeps into your life, you go out into the world with a unique blend of confidence and humility. Humility, because you don't think you're anything special in and of yourself. You're a sinner, and all the good things you have are gifts from God. So you hold no pride over anyone else. But on the other hand, you have the confidence of knowing that whether or not you get the job or the spouse or the comfy retirement or whatever, you're still loved by the God of the universe at the cost of his own life. Nothing can truly touch you. And that makes you immensely attractive because you're neither of the things that turn people off in the world. Uh, People are turned off by people who are proud, right? They are also turned off by people who are self-deprecating. But the person who knows who they are in Christ is neither. And this is obviously showed in the life of Daniel and then Darius. 
On the other hand, though, why is someone living the Christian life so hated? Well, first look at the satraps who hate Daniel. They try to dig up dirt on him. They try to find something in his past or current behavior that will disqualify him. But then they cannot find anything, and that makes them even more irritated with him. Why? Because his behavior exposes how bad they are. Look, their thought was, he must be corrupt because all of us are. Let's find his corruption. But then he wasn't. And that irritated them all the more because it exposed that, the, that it was possible to be as successful as they were without being immoral. They had their sins showed to them, and they hated Daniel for it. So they tried to kill him. Look, one of the things we have to get over as Christians in Babylon is that we can be doing everything right and still be hated for it. And part of the reason for that is that our distinctly Christian life will make others feel guilty. Seriously, if you don't believe me, go ask Jesus. He did everything absolutely perfectly and was killed for it. But we just have to be honest that people are going to hate us. Because if we are living distinctly Christian lives, we are going to expose the immoral lives of the people around us. When a person sees that you are actually living the way that they ought to live, they are overcome with frustration and anger because you've shattered their God, that they are better than most people, or at least they're somewhere in the middle. And when you destroy someone's God, they get really angry about it, usually. Jesus says that if the world hates you, it's because it hated him first. If you want to be associated with Jesus, there will be people who hate you. There must be. If not, you're maybe a coward, or maybe you just haven't really realized what it means to be a Christian. And so let's put a bow on this first point. If you're not loved by some people and hated by others for your Christian faith, you are not living a distinctly Christian life. Either you are too permissive and people generally like you because you never really expose their sins, or you are too condemning and never show the bright light of the gospel. We must be both. And it's time to start asking ourselves, which of those do we need to work on? Maybe both. So before we move on to this, from this point, let's get super practical. How did Daniel become this kind of person? The answer is prayer, three times a day. We see that his prayer life of three times a day with the window open toward Jerusalem was so consistent that it was the thing that satra the satraps used to catch him. A consistent devotional life turned Daniel into a distinctly Christian man. And let's notice a couple things about this. On the one hand, it was obvious that the satraps knew he prayed like this. His Christian life was obvious to the people around him. Let's consider that for a second. Is it that obvious that we are Christians to the world around us? Is our devotional life so consistent that if someone was trying to capture us, their best chance would be to catch us doing something devotional? But also, three times a day of prayer deeply rooted Daniel's soul in God. And remember what I wrote to you in our weekly update email. Prayer is more than just asking God for stuff. It is deeply rooting ourselves in the truths of God, letting those truths seep into the cracks of our souls, pressing those truths down on ourselves so that they are not just things that we know, but things that we live by. So that's the lifestyle. Let's talk about the law. The law that Darius makes is not abnormal among Near Eastern royalty. It was generally accepted that the king of an empire was also the leader of its religion. And so the suggestion of the satraps was not unreasonable in the mind of Darius. Here he is, having taken over a new kingdom, he needs to assert his control. What better way than to make everyone unite under one religion for a little bit? However, of course, you and I know that the law was not normal. It was specifically an attack against Daniel. 
Now, when we were studying Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace, we said that the law that was made that they broke was not really targeting them on the surface. It was simply a political move. But we also said that while the people in power who make these laws are not often specifically targeting Christians, there are forces behind them, namely Satan and his demons, who tempt those in authority to act a certain way that seems perfectly reasonable, but is also an attack against the church of God. The same dynamic is going on here. Darius loves Daniel, and Darius is not thinking through the fact that this might affect Daniel. He's not maliciously targeting Daniel, but those who are in his ear are targeting Daniel. We have to be honest about this and say that while our politicians or influencers might not be intentionally targeting us as Christians, there are forces behind them that are most certainly targeting us. And let's talk about the nature of the law. It's a law mandating that Daniel not worship. Now, there are a couple things that are interesting about this law. First of all, uh, I think an honest reader of the text would ask two questions. First, they would ask, couldn't he just not pray to anyone for 30 days? Second, they might ask, couldn't he have just closed his window while he prayed? Well, the Psalms talk about praying three times a day, and Solomon's prayer, the dedication of the temple in 2 Kings 8, talks explicitly about praying toward the temple because it was the place of God's presence. So in a sense, no, he could not have given up his prayer life. God's word compelled him to continue praying every day toward the temple. And he knew the consequences for his actions, but he kept serving God because he was not going to let anyone tell him to not worship God. He feared God more than he feared human beings. And so let's make this practical for us. Has there ever been a time where a government told us not to worship, or at least to not worship in our normal way? What would Daniel's example lead us to do? And even if a government mandate were not in place, but fear of a disease or something similar would tempt us to stop worshiping as we do, what would the example of Daniel lead us to do? Look, every one of us has to ask, who do we fear more? Do we fear God or do we fear something else? Now, of course, someone will say, right, but there's not an absolute command in scripture that we have to worship every single Sunday or that we have to worship altogether or that we have to take the Lord's Supper weekly. First of all, that's a shaky argument. I would actually contend the Bible kind of does make that case, but I'll grant you that the words, you must go to church every week, do not show up in the Bible. So let me just ask you this. What do you think we do at church? If you think you're just there to hear an inspiring or maybe educational speech, to sing some songs, to see your friends, it's not surprising that you would give it up. But if you think that the eternal God who bought your soul from the fires of hell with his own son's life is coming to meet you here, then why would anything make you want to give that up? And frankly, why would we give it up for things even more small than some government mandate or pandemic? Why would, I'm tired, or it's hard to get there, or I'd like to move out of the city, ever be even close to a reason to miss what is happening here on a Sunday morning every single week? Look, you don't have to, true enough. But if you don't want to every week, I think you probably don't understand what's happening here. So let's put a bow on this point. We need to be willing to say that we live in Babylon and that in Babylon there are risks to being a Christian. But the risk is worth the reward because the reward is certain. It's life with God. And Jesus said, don't be afraid of those who can harm the body. Be afraid of those who, uh, the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. So that's the lifestyle and the law. Let's finish with the lion. 
Of course, if you're paying attention, you probably wonder why I say lion and not lions. That's because I'm not talking about the lions in the den. I'm talking about the lion who came into the den. Now, I must acknowledge that there are some very intelligent Bible teachers who I respect greatly who say that the angel who showed up with Daniel in the lion's den is not the pre-incarnate Jesus, but I am personally convinced that it is Jesus. And it's the same Jesus who is called in Revelation, the lion of the tribe of Judah. And so bear with me because it's not explicit in the text, but it's how I imagine it. What if, as Daniel tumbles down the edge of the lion's den and hits the floor, he looks up and he sees the lions. They lift their heads and start to come over to him. But as they get closer, another lion, much bigger and imposing, slinks out of the darkness and roars at those smaller lions and then stands in front of Daniel. And what if that's what happened? And the lion was, in fact, how Jesus showed up in the lion's den. Like I said, I don't know exactly what this angel that Daniel saw looked like. But I do know this. There was a man who did everything that was right and who regularly prayed to God, standing up for faithfulness to God and his word, even though those in authority hated it. And so those in authority hatched a plan to have him killed. And while the true king did not want him to die, he still sentenced him to death in order that justice would be served. But unlike Daniel, this man did die. And he was put into a hole in the earth and a stone was rolled over the opening. But just like Daniel, this man came out of that hole in the earth, praising God. And it's because he did that Daniel and you and I are able to know that someday, though our bodies also will go into the ground, they will not stay there forever. You, of course, know who I'm talking about. This is about Jesus. And by the way, where does Jesus meet Daniel? In the den. Just like he met Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the furnace. Jesus will meet you in your suffering in Babylon because Jesus meets us in the injustice and suffering of the world. If your goal in life is to be happy and comfortable, prepare to not meet Jesus because Jesus isn't there. If your goal is to be faithful to God in Babylon and to be willing to suffer for it, Jesus will meet you there. And frankly, that's not just a promise. It's also your hope. You can make it through whatever is difficult, painful, or challenging about your life in Babylon because you know that Jesus took the ultimate pain and suffering for you. Jesus went into the den so that you could come out. And so no matter what it is that you're suffering, it will not last forever because Jesus has already suffered completely for it. Any suffering for being a Christian that you have right now is just the sign that you are connected to Christ. So let me finish with this. The name Daniel means God is my judge. And what an appropriate name. Daniel did not care what anyone but God thought of him. He followed no one's word except God's word. He organized everything in his life around the truths of God, not the values of his culture. Brothers and sisters, notice both sides of his name. On the one hand, take glory in the fact that only God's opinion of you matters. But on the other hand, remember that now you serve him and him only. Not your culture, not yourself, only him. God has made you a Daniel. Go live like it. Amen.